So uh, we're, we're in this last part of Mark chapter 3 tonight. And, and last week we looked at when Jesus calls the 12 apostles. Um, and we looked at the question, what is a disciple? Um, Jesus calls 12 of them. What does it actually mean, therefore, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a believer of Jesus? Um, tonight, what we have is sort of a contrast case. So we're looking at these verses. And these verses focus not on people who did believe in Jesus, but on people who didn't. And so if last week's question was, what is a disciple? This week's question is, what isn't a disciple? Um, Or, you know, you could also put it this way. If last week was kind of about what is belief, uh, this week's question is, what is unbelief? Uh, You've kind of got a, you know, an anatomy of of, of both of those things here. So I'd like to look at this passage. I'd like to read it. It's going to be up on the screen. Um, And as always, I'd really encourage you, just grab a Bible, grab a journal. Um, Don't just kind of, you know, sit there and and let it all pass over you, but actually engage, you know, write, write, take notes, write things down. Um, And let's read this passage from Mark chapter 3. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so this passage has three different parts. Uh, The first bit, verses 20 through 21, Jesus is opposed by his own family. Then, 22 through 30, he's opposed by the teachers of the law. But then in verses 31 through 35, he's embraced by a third group of people whom Jesus calls his real family. And then finally, there's, there's a notoriously difficult verse in this section that uh, probably caught your attention, I'm, I'm assuming, as we read, uh, read through. This is verse 29, and it's smack in the middle of the passage. It's about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, and according to Jesus, he calls this an unforgivable sin. And so this, this raises lots of different questions. Um, you know, for example, um, how do I know that I have actually not myself committed the unforgivable sin? Or, or is it possible to sin so badly that I fall beyond the pale of God's forgiveness? Um, this is a tough verse that raises some of those questions. But as we're, we're going to see as, as we look at it, it actually is the key to making sense of this entire, this entire passage. Uh, so what we have here is a little bit of a sandwich. You've got two family passages about Jesus' real followers. And then uh, you've got Jesus' fake followers. And the section in the middle will explain to us the difference. And so uh, as, as we go along, if you have questions about the unforgivable sin, don't worry. Uh, we're going to get there. 
And just, you know, by the way, this is one of the reasons uh, that it's so, so good to just go through a book of the Bible. Because if I were to be up here and were to just give you, you know, to teach on my favorite passages, well, you'd probably learn more about Michael than you would about Jesus. What I love about going through a book of the Bible is that the Bible sets the agenda. And sometimes you come to passages and verses that are really hard and that you don't want to hear. And we need to hear them. Anyway, that's my, my soapbox. So let's look at this together. Um, first of all, I, I want to zoom in a little bit on, on these groups that oppose Jesus. Um, one of the things I think is just so fascinating about the Gospels is that when you read the Gospels, Jesus divides people so, so strongly. Um, so, so I don't know if you ever think about this, but I, I think about this sometimes. That, that all through the Gospels, Jesus, is, you know, he's doing things like preaching, um, he's doing miracles, he's dying on the cross, he's rising from the dead. And there are always people watching. You know, sometimes there's thousands watching, sometimes there's only dozens, but in nearly every case, there's almost always a divide uh, where there are some who see and hear and experience all the things that Jesus did and said, and they believe. They follow him. And then there are others, and they see and hear and experience the exact same things, and they disbelieve. And not only do they disbelieve, but they actually become Jesus' enemies. And some of them, like the Pharisees, are even so obsessed um, to the point of wanting to kill him. And in fact, even in Jesus' 12 disciples, there was a divide, because you have Judas, you know, even Jesus, it's been said, even Jesus didn't quite bat a thousand, which is not really true because he knew that Judas would betray him. But the point is, even in Jesus' circle of his closest followers, there was a divide. And so it's kind of one of the great riddles of Jesus. Why is this? Why is it that, that there's always, you know, people seeing the exact same Jesus doing the exact same things, and yet there's these two dramatically different responses to him? Um, you know, what gives? What gives? And uh, what, what this passage is going to show us is sort of why the divide is there. Uh, look a little bit more closely at this. So in verses 20 through 21, it says that Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, by the way, um, I just thought this was such a colorful um, way to translate this. There's someone who's translated that little verse uh, and has said that Jesus' family was so um, confused and, and kind of um, opposed to him, that one way that you could, you could, you could translate their words is that uh, they went to seize him believing that Jesus had gone berserk. So how do you like that? You know, Jesus, his own family, these are the people that uh, should have been his biggest cheerleaders, uh, his biggest supporters. They don't believe in him. And they not, they not only don't believe in him, they actually think he's gone crazy. They think he's too extreme. They think he's too fanatical. And by the way, if you follow Jesus in this world, it's, it's very possible that the world or even other Christians will look at you in the exact same way. Some of you maybe have even experienced that, where your own family members are not on board with your commitment to follow Christ, whatever the cost. Um, you know, I, I don't want to lump my own uh, parents in this because in general, I'm very fortunate that they've been supportive, but I just, as I was thinking about this, I just couldn't help but remember there was a moment I had in high school um, when I, I was in high school, tended to be involved in lots of different, you know, Christian activities to the point that I a lot of times would come home pretty late. And I remember one night my mom sent me a text message in the form of a limerick and it said, 
Uh, there once was a boy named Miguel who tried to save people from hell. He stayed out too late, too much on his plate, and didn't tell his mom, but oh well. I don't think that kind of counts as what Jesus experienced in this passage. However, the principle is true. Um, and if you go to some other places in the world, to declare Jesus as Lord is, is a death sentence. And it's sometimes a death sentence at the hands of your own family. Have you ever heard of honor killings before? Uh, this is particularly common in the Muslim world, where shame and honor are such critical values in that culture that if a Muslim becomes a follower of Jesus, sometimes their own family will kill them because it's seen as a way of delivering their family from shame, uh, from the shame of, of leaving Islam behind. So anyway, this is what Jesus encounters. It's something that his followers might encounter as well. And in verse 22, it actually gets a little worse. And this time, the opposition isn't from Jesus' inner circle. It's this time from the, 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 the leaders of the nation, the teachers of the law. And, and what they say is particularly striking. So they say that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Uh, that's how he's driving out demons. Now, now the context, if you look at in, in Matthew's gospel, the same story, they say this right after Jesus has himself cast a demon out of someone. And, and their response is to look at this, this amazing miracle, and they say that Jesus is Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub uh, is a term that means the prince of demons. It's sort of another word for Satan. And so Jesus has literally just gloriously set someone free from spiritual bondage. His disciples are, are, are probably rejoicing, but the, the teachers of the law look at this and they say, oh yeah, Jesus, by the way, we think you're Satan. We think you're Satan. That is how strong their opposition is. And so, so you already can see that there's, there's, a, there's a division going on here. You've got his disciples, uh, which is kind of our focus last week. And then you've got these responses. What do you do with these? Why do they happen? What's the anatomy of, of this unbelief and opposition that Jesus is encountering? Let's, let's, let's look at it. Let's figure it out. Um, what I want to show you in, in both of these responses here, both of his family and of the, of the teachers of the law, is that whatever's behind their their, their resistance to Jesus, it can't be two things. And the two things are, it can't be because of a lack of evidence, and it can't be because of a lack of exposure. It can't be because of a lack of exposure, it can't be because of a lack of evidence. Now, this is actually kind of interesting, because each of these kind of map onto two very common objections that a lot of people in our world, maybe even some of us or our friends, raise against Christianity. So, uh, this first one, uh, lack of exposure, you know, one, one of the questions that's sometimes raised about Christianity is this, you know, what about um, all of those who have never heard of the name of Jesus before, you know, who have not had exposure to the gospel? You know, what do we do with that? I'm not going to you know, spend tons of time on this, and it's a complicated question that I don't have a full, fully perfect answer to. But what's so interesting about, about this story is that if ever there were a group of people that had had plenty of exposure to Jesus, it would have been this first group, his own family. They had had more than enough exposure to see who he was. They'd seen his miracles. They'd seen his character. Um, they had plenty of exposure to believe, and yet they don't. And so something um, must be motivating that unbelief. Whatever it is, it can't be because of lack of exposure. Um, you know, in the 1970s, there was a, a, a guy named Leslie Newbigin, and he was, a, he was a British missionary, 
And he had been a missionary in India for, I think, 40, 50 years. And in the 1970s, he, he comes back to England. And this is, you know, this is before the internet, before cell phones. And, and so it's not as though while he's in India, you know, he's able to hop on Facebook or Instagram and kind of see what's happening back home. So, so he goes back to, to his own country. And he realizes that the country of England that he's now returned to is a completely different country than the country he left 40, 50 years ago. And what he, what he noticed was different was that in many ways, even though Britain still saw itself as a Christian nation, Christianity had declined so much in that time that Britain was actually less receptive to Jesus than a non-Christian nation was like India. And what's so striking is that this is the exact same thing that's happening today. You know, the objection is raised, well, what about all the countries that haven't had enough exposure to Jesus? But as a matter of fact, today, it's all of the, like the, the Western countries, the countries that have had exposure to Jesus, that have a church in every town and sometimes on every corner, we're the ones who are rejecting the gospel. It's, country, it's places like Asia and Africa and South America that are flocking to Jesus in droves. So that just shows that there has to be something more behind lack of belief than simply, I haven't been exposed to enough of it yet. And this also goes to show that Christianity is not something you inherit. Uh, You know, you, you can be born in a Christian family, and that has nothing to do with whether or not you are really a believer. You know, you can be born in a garage. It doesn't make you a car. And so, obviously, your family of origin is significant. It can influence you. But there is no such thing as a coattails Christian. You can't be a Christian just on the coattails of the faith of your parents or your grandparents or your siblings or your friends. Jesus loves you so much that he wants to invite you personally to know him. So it can't be a lack of exposure It also can't be a lack of evidence. And this is kind of the other common objection, that one of the reasons why it's said that people can't believe in God today is because lack of evidence. You can't see God. How do you know he's real? And in fact, there was a famous atheist about probably close to going on 100 years ago now, a guy named Bertrand Russell. And he was once asked, you know, Mr. Russell, you're an atheist. If you find out that you're wrong and you meet God one day, what are you going to tell him? And his reply was, I'm going to tell him... (laughs) Not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, maybe you've actually had friends that have had this kind of same reply. Actually, actually I have a, someone I know. Uh, a, a, someone I uh, once knew when I was helping to lead a little small group Bible study. He, uh, someone who was not a believer but wanted to learn about Jesus. I remember asking her one day, I said, Anne, you know, what, what do you think it would take you to actually decide you want to follow Christ? And she kind of thought for a minute, and then she said, well, you know, maybe if, like, I was lying in bed one night, and, and like, a man in white came and stood by my bedpost and, and, you know, said, I'm Jesus, come and follow me. And I think that's kind of a, a mentality that maybe a lot of us have, um, and it's, it, you can see why. I mean, it would seem that, like, if the evidence were that in your face, well, then, of course, I would have to believe. But notice here, notice here, that this is exactly the kind of evidence that the teachers of the law get. I mean, they see Jesus cast out a demon. You know, they see Jesus do these miracles. And, 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 you know, before Jesus, to my knowledge, there is not another 
exorcism incident in the Bible until Jesus shows up. Demons don't rear their head until Jesus comes on the scene. You know, that, that's how strongly Satan wants to oppose the work of Jesus. And so the Pharisees are watching Jesus do something unprecedented. They've got all the evidence that they could ever need. But not only do they not believe him, they call him Satan. So, I haven't really answered the question, have I? I've just kind of complicated it. You know, I've just pointed out, you know, whatever is behind all of, all of the opposition, it can't be these two things. It can't be lack of exposure. It can't be lack of evidence. Um, let's go on and, and see kind of what answer Jesus himself actually gives. Um, so Jesus is called Beelzebub. You know, they look at him and say, hey, Jesus, we think you're Satan. Um, not, quite a, not quite a nice compliment, is it? And, and look at how Jesus replies. You know, it's so cool. He doesn't reply with, with anger. He doesn't lash out at them. Um, you know, some people think that the definition of, of courage today is actually anger. Um, that to be a person of courage, you have to go on social media and shout down the other side in anger and rage. Um, and that's not the way of Jesus. Um, you know, when Jesus, Jesus did get angry, um, there's such a thing as righteous anger. And a lot of times people point to the scene where he's in the temple and he casts out all the money changers. Interesting detail that in that story, it says that the cord that he used to 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 whip all of the people out of the temple was a cord that he wove himself. You know, just imagine Jesus taking each little thread of that cord and weaving it together into a whip. Does that sound like just spontaneous, um, irrational, um, bottled up anger that just exploded? Or does it sound like a very premeditated, carefully thought through, uh, righteously inspired action? A little sidebar. But look at, how he does, look at how he actually does respond. Uh, verses 23 through 26, he gives you a couple of word pictures, and he, he, he uses some logic here. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. So the point is a pretty logical one. He's, he's simply pointing out that, look, the demons are on Satan's side. So if Jesus is also on Satan's side, then it doesn't make any sense that he'd be waging war against the demonic. Um, and then in verse 27, he kind of adds a little more. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. And it's the same idea. Satan is the strong man. And Jesus attacks him, and, and, and he steals back his possessions. The possessions here, I think, are actually people. People who are in Satan's bondage, Jesus has come to set them, to set us free. And that means that if you feel like you are being, if you, if you are under fire uh, in your life right now, and you feel as though... That you are being assaulted by Satan, the strong man. This story says that Jesus is stronger than the strong man. You know, he's the one who was able to disarm and, 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 and subject him to disgrace on the cross. This is in Colossians chapter 2. And so the point here is that, that Jesus, he does not compromise with evil. He does not cooperate with evil. He resists evil fiercely. And so his point is that if he's casting out demons, you know, how can he be possessed by Satan? Because he's, he's not Satan's ally. He very clearly shows himself to be Satan's enemy. 
So he kind of, first of all, shows that, look, teachers of the law, like the logic you're working with here doesn't make any sense. And then you come to verses 28 and 29. Um, And this is the part where uh, Jesus begins to discuss this thing called an unforgivable sin. Um, And I'm going to look at this a little bit, because like I said, I think this is actually the key to kind of understanding all of this. So in verse 29, here, here it is. It says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. So first of all, we've got to ask ourselves, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Um, why is it an unforgivable sin? Why does Jesus bring it up here? Um, any, any, just, you know, help me out here. Any thoughts on, on what it might mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Just shout it out if you've got an idea. Reject him? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Where's Tristan? Tristan had a good definition of this earlier. I don't want to put you on the spot, Tristan. Yeah, okay. So, so the idea of hardness of heart to, to a certain extent, yeah. Yeah, well, um, these, are, these are really good. These are really good. Um, and in fact, um, here, I'm, I'm, I'm going to basically kind of try to connect the dots and almost land exactly kind of where we've already landed. So, so to, to see what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, you have to know a little bit about what the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. And, and so for that, you can actually look at some other words of Jesus. This is in John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. And uh, there Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. He calls him the counselor. He says, unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So what do we find out here? We find out that the Holy Spirit brings conviction. Conviction. What is conviction? Of conviction is what you are when you're morally moved. Uh, you know, it's when you you see something, um, or experience something, or have something happen to you that makes that, that makes you think uh, this is right, or or this is wrong. Uh, so so it's when you're morally moved. And in fact, um, the, the specific kind of conviction that Jesus says the Holy Spirit brings is a very particular kind. It says it's the conviction of guilt. So that's not just to say that this is right or this is wrong, but it's to say, I was wrong. By hook or by crook, the Holy Spirit is sovereignly orchestrating all of the circumstances in your life in order to bring you to a place where you find joy and freedom in being able to say, I was wrong. And that's not because the Holy Spirit is trying to be judgy. You know, I'm sure um, you've probably encountered judgy people in your life. And if you haven't, uh, just go on the internet. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is not like that. That's not the kind of judgment. The Holy Spirit is not trying to bring condemnation, but conviction. And those are two really different things. Uh, some of you, so this is an old movie. This is the kind of movie my parents would watch. Um, and, and one of the reasons I, I, I know this movie, I think I did watch it with my parents, but there's also a pretty famous clip from this movie that like maybe you've seen on YouTube. It's the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles with uh, John Candy and Steve Martin. Anyone seen this? Raise a hand. Okay, so, so the, you, you guys probably know the scene I'm talking about. It's the famous scene. Well, I don't, I don't know if they're drunk or what's happening, but Steve Martin and John Candy are in the car, and they're driving in the wrong lane. And, and there's this guy 
who, uh, you know, another, another driver, rolls down his window and tries to yell over to them. He says, you're going the wrong way. You're going to kill someone. And the two guys in the car can't hear him. He's like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And he says, you're going the wrong way. You're going to kill someone. And uh, I don't remember how the scene ends. Do they crash? Do you guys remember? Yeah, okay, they crash. Yeah. Uh, that, I think, is a little bit of a picture of what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is simply trying to tell us that apart from Jesus, we're going the wrong way. And the person we're going to kill is ourselves. That's not being judgy. That's simply being loving. And so Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, wants to bring each of us to a place where we recognize that <laughs> there are many, many parts of our own hearts that, that are going the wrong way. And conviction is essentially a gigantic stop sign that says, stop. <laughs> like, you're going the wrong way. There's a path that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death, it says in Proverbs. And the Holy Spirit is designed to kind of shine a light on that stop sign and to say, wait, stop, don't go any further toward the cliff, turn around and find life. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And this makes sense, therefore, of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is all about. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, I would suggest to you, means to take the conviction of the Holy Spirit and, and, and to, to forcefully reject it to a point where, where you simply are, are, don't allow any of that conviction to really get through. And of course, if you think about that for a minute, it actually makes sense why Jesus would call this an unforgivable sin. It's easy to look at those words and think, oh my goodness, you know, this is, this is terrifying. You know, what if, I've can, what if I've committed the unforgivable sin? Let, let me just try to take away some of the fear factor of this. And, and, and just to show why it actually makes sense that this particular blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would be an unforgivable sin. Because repentance is the way that we enter the kingdom of God. And repentance is, is to simply stop at the stop sign, turn around, and go the other direction. It's to admit that you're that you're a sinner, that you are going the wrong way and need to turn around toward Jesus. And so if the Holy Spirit brings conviction, but then blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to basically reject that conviction, no conviction means no repentance. No repentance means no salvation. And so therefore, it makes perfect sense then why Jesus would call this uh, an eternal sin or, or the unforgivable sin. And by the way, what this means is that if you're worried tonight about whether you have committed the unforgivable sin, that actually means that you can rest easy and know that you haven't committed it. Because you know, if you're concerned that you might have committed the unforgivable sin, then actually that's proof that you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. Because if you had, you wouldn't be concerned about it. <laughs> you wouldn't be convicted about even the very possibility of that. And so the very fact that you're concerned to begin with about, about the possibility of that, that's, that's really just proof of the Holy Spirit's conviction at work in your life. I hope that makes sense. Um, I hope it takes some of the edge and some of the fear um, away from that. And there's one more thing I want to just point out. Um, it's, you, everyone always looks at verse 29 <laughs> about the unforgivable sin, but did you notice that there's actually a verse right before that and it's verse 28. Um, verse 28 may be the most incredible verse in this whole passage. And it says, I tell you the truth, 
all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. Now, do you see what this is saying? Jesus is saying that, that in, you know, think about someone like, someone like Judas, who kind of wound up turning away from uh, the, the invitation of the Holy Spirit to, 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 to really come and put his trust in Jesus. But then you've got this verse here, which says that God's grace is actually so wide and so deep, his forgiveness is so extensive, that, that there is no sin that can, can ever make us out sin God's grace. And so very often, um, I know that in my own life, the reason why a verse like verse 29 might sting you know, a verse that might make me fear that maybe I've gone beyond the pale of God's forgiveness is really because maybe I haven't fully taken in verse 28. And maybe I haven't fully recognized that there is nothing, um, you know, no, uh, no, no, no act, um, no, no act of commission or omission that, that I might commit that is beyond the possibility of God's forgiveness. And the reason for that is because of what he did on the cross, Jesus chased us down um, and, and took every single thing that we've done on his shoulders so that we could read verse 28 and never have to worry about the possibility of verse 29. And that then leads me to the final little bit in this, which is the last section, um, which is about what Jesus, who Jesus calls his real family. Um, and I'm not, sure, I'm not sure if there's a slide for this one. But in these last couple of verses, Jesus says, well, you know, here are some people who oppose me. What does it look like um, to actually be those who follow me? And he looks at all those who are sitting around him um, and who are, like we talked about last week, simply being with him. Um, and have also um, left behind the way that they were living before in order to follow him. Now, in a way, that's sort of an act of repentance. It's an act of saying, <laughs> the way that, you know, when, when I'm managing my life, <laughs> it doesn't go so well. Like, I'm going to actually allow Jesus to be the manager of my life and to let him be in charge rather than me. That, that itself is kind of an act of stopping and turning around. Jesus looks at them and he says, the ones who are my real family are those who are doing this, who are doing this. Uh, he calls it obeying the will of God, um, which we know from other places in scripture, before it means anything else, always means belief. It means trusting in Jesus. And he points to them, those around him and says, here's an example of what that looks like. And so this is the contrast in this story. This is the difference between a true disciple and a fake disciple. This is the difference between belief and unbelief. It's not how many miracles you've seen. It's not how much evidence you have. It's not how many books of the Bible you've read, how many verses you've memorized. All of that is external. What matters is something internal. What matters is something that, that, that ultimately is brought about by the Holy Spirit. And it's, and it's a willingness. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, a, a line that's crossed of repentance and faith. Uh, the way into the kingdom of God is through saying sorry. It's through saying sorry to God. It's through um, saying, God, like, I've gotten it wrong. Um, that's what it's all about. And so just as we close tonight, um, I want to I just stir the pot a little bit, and I want to invite you um, as we move into small groups um, to be thinking about before God ways in which maybe he is trying um, to place a stop sign somewhere in your life and to maybe put a finger on, on some area of your life or of your heart 
that, that even though you are a follower of Jesus, maybe this is an area of your life that, that is what you still might call, call kind of unconverted. It's like an area where like the math hasn't fully added up yet. And, and it's as though this part of your heart still is kind of living as though the gospel isn't really true. You know, if Jesus has kind of brought you into a space where you feel like you're at the end of yourself, if you feel like um, there's a part of your life that's, that's, that's under a cloud of confusion, if you feel like you're lonely, if you feel like um, people are against you, if you feel like um, circumstances are out of your control, if you feel like there's, there's, there's like a chink in the armor of your worldview and there's something that just doesn't add up, you know, if, there, if there's anything where it seems like God is kind of pressing, can I suggest to you that that might be an invitation to repentance, an invitation to saying, God, I want to give you this area of my life. Would you come in and help me go the right way? And if you're here tonight and you um, have never accepted Jesus and have never taken the first step of repentance, which is to say, Lord, um, I'm sorry for trying to be in control of my own life. Please, would you come into my life? Thank you for what you've done for me on the cross. Then maybe this is an invitation for you tonight to do that as well. So I'm going to pray, I'm going to move us into small groups, and uh, we're going to go into small groups. Dear Father, thank you for this passage. Um, Father, thank you for the fact that you're a good enough God that you stop us in our tracks sometimes to keep us from going down paths that lead to death in order to help us turn to paths that lead to life. Lord, I pray that um, you would help us walk um, and just an attitude of continued repentance, an attitude that just every day is willing to um, kind of go on the record against ourselves and say, man, God, you're God and I'm not. You're holy and I'm not. Lord, would your spirit work and move in this place? And would you speak to us? In Jesus' name, amen.